Well, good morning, Grace Chapel. Good to be with you all this morning. Uh, last week, we were out in Denver visiting our two middle sons and our newest grandchildren. Now, I think I've shown pretty good restraint in not overdoing the grandkid thing, but I think it's time for a family update, okay? So just a <laughs> quick little catch-up on uh, what's happening. Uh, we're up to four grandchildren now, so we're excited about that. Uh, our daughter Kelly and her husband Isom live down in Florida, and they have two little girls, uh, Lainey and Nora. Our next son down, Brendan, and uh, his wife Ellen live in Denver. And just a few weeks ago, they gave birth to uh, uh, our first grandson. Uh, they named him Fort Davis Wilkerson. So he is the fifth Fort something Wilkerson in, uh, in our generations of family, but they'll, they'll call him Davis. Uh, our son Mark and his wife Ellie also live in Denver. And about four months ago, they gave birth to a little girl named Hadley. And uh, she had kind of a rough start, spent a few weeks in the NICU, but she's doing well now, so we're grateful uh, for that. Now, on a recent Sunday night, we were together, and uh, we believe in training our children in the way they should go when they're young so they don't depart from it. So <laughs> as we sat down for some Sunday night football, we made sure they got off to a good start, okay? <laughs> and then finally... Our youngest son, Daniel, is a senior in college down in Florida. He has no plans of children of his own, but he enjoys being the favorite uncle. So, uh, so that's the family. They're all doing well. And uh, we really do appreciate the many of you who ask about them, pray for them, have prayed for and loved our family since the day we got here. And many of you have invested in their lives along the way. Um, so we're very, very grateful for that and feel very blessed as a family. Well, 20-some years ago, a couple named Peter Scazzaro and his wife, Jerry, planted a church in Queens, New York. Now, they had all the right credentials for that assignment. A few years on staff at InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, seminary training, a year on the mission field in Costa Rica, where they became fluent in Spanish. And so they moved into Elmhurst, Queens, with a bold vision for reaching and serving one of the most culturally diverse communities in our entire country. New Life Fellowship got off to a great start. They had 45 people in worship on their first Sunday. Within a handful of years, they were up to 400 people in their English-speaking congregation and 200-plus in their Spanish-speaking congregation. People were coming to faith in Christ in great number. The materially poor were being served and empowered. Leaders were being raised, small groups being started, churches being planted. Peter and his team were deeply spiritual in their approach, committed to prayer and fasting and the fullness of God's Holy Spirit. I was serving a church just down the road from them, not too far away, and everybody in the city was talking about what was happening at New Life Fellowship. But beneath the surface, Peter says, all was not well. He and his wife and their team were living under constant stress feeling overwhelmed and overworked. There was little joy in their lives and in their ministry. There was constant turnover among the staff and the lay leadership of the church as people burned out or walked away over unresolved hurt or conflict. Peter himself found himself skimming over the surface of relationships, even with his own wife and children. Jerry felt alone as she tried to raise four children in a challenging urban neighborhood. Things came to a head about six years in when the pastor of the Spanish-speaking congregation broke away, taking 200 people with him. Now, Peter should have seen it coming, 
but he had neither the energy nor the courage to confront the problem until it was too late. And so now he was not only tired and stressed, he was angry. When I was alone in my car, he writes, the thought of what had happened would trigger a burst of anger, a knot in my stomach. Within seconds, curse words would follow, flying almost involuntarily from my mouth. Instead of addressing the issues, Peter kept up a good front, casting fresh vision to the church and telling the new life story in conferences all across the country. Meanwhile, he had gnawing doubts on the inside about his call and even about his faith, thoughts and feelings he dared not share with anybody. Instead, he intensified the early morning prayer meetings at church. He studied and preached on revival. He bought his wife a book on marriage and poured himself into the ministry. The bottom fell out another year later when one night Jerry woke him up at two in the morning and announced that she was quitting the church. I can't take it anymore, she said. The stress, the constant crises, the loneliness, this church is no longer life for me. It is death. It was an awful moment. Peter was hurt. He was angry. He literally wanted to die. But in the sovereignty of God, it became a turning point, a wake-up moment for him and for them, a turning point that over the course of the next few years would lead to a transformation in his life, in their marriage, their ministry, and their church. Over the course of the next couple of years, through some counseling and some, some soul-searching and some sabbatical time, Peter discovered for the first time in his life the inseparable link between emotional health and spiritual maturity. I'll say that again. He discovered the inseparable link between emotional health and spiritual maturity. And that discovery over time transformed his life, their home, and that church. Now this fall, we are discovering together the ingredients of true community, as found in Paul's letter to the church in the city of Philippi. Week by week, we're identifying characteristics of true community. And last week, we talked about, uh, about the community as a place of spiritual formation. We talked about coming together around a common passion to know Christ and to be like Christ. In other words, we come together to grow together. And that's all good. But as the schizeros discovered the hard way, there is more to spiritual maturity than Bible study and prayer. There are emotional and relational dimensions of our lives as individuals and as a community that have to be understood and cultivated if we're going to experience true community. And that's where Paul's going to take us in the passage this morning. It's such an important passage, such an important topic. We're going to spend a couple of weeks on it, actually. So as we work our way through the section this morning, let's be asking ourselves a question. How healthy are we? As individuals, as a community, how healthy are we emotionally and spiritually? You might think of this little passage here as Paul the physician doing a checkup on us. Same way a physician will check blood pressure and uh, temperature and height and weight, Paul's going to walk through a series of, of uh, characteristics of a healthy life, healthy community, and we'll see how we do. 
He begins at chapter 4 with a transitional sentence. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Now, when you come to a therefore in Scripture, you know that a transition is taking place. Paul is wrapping up his previous teaching on the importance of spiritual growth and formation, and he's pivoting now to talk about the connection between that spiritual growth and emotional and relational health. Notice the warmth of these words. My brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, dear friends. Paul obviously has deep affection for these believers but it's also clear that their relationships have become strained at points. Verses 2 and 3. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side for the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, if, if you think the name Fort Davis is unusual, it's got nothing on Euodia and Syntyche. I don't know what they call them for short, but in any event, we have two women in this community who are not getting along. Now, we're not told exactly what the dispute was, but it was something more substantial than who makes the best green bean casserole. This had to have been a serious issue for Paul to have brought it up publicly and to mention them by name. Now, these women were obviously leaders in the church. Paul held them in high regard. These were obviously spiritually mature women. And yet their disagreement is threatening the unity and vitality of this church. Now, we're going to come back next week and look a little more closely at these verses and this conflict. We're going to talk together about how we resolve conflict, not just in the church, but in home and work relationships and others as well. All I want you to notice now is that it's possible to be passionately pursuing spiritual growth, to be active in the life of a church and on mission, and yet be living with unresolved issues that rob you of joy and threaten your relationships with those around you and the church to which you belong. Notice here, this is not just a problem for Euodia and Syntyche. It's affecting the whole community, Clement and all the rest of them. And it struck me that this is the very situation Peter Scazzera was describing in the words we looked at a few moments ago. He's describing people who are passionate for God and His work, yet who remain disconnected from their own emotions or those around them. Now, we're all familiar with this kind of situation. If not in the church, then perhaps in our homes or, or in the workplace. We've all worked with people who are good at what they do, Marketing or medicine or finance or construction, they're good at what they do, but they're miserable to work with. They just, it's, they're no fun to be with them at all. They just can't get along with people. And we all know husbands and wives and mothers and fathers who, who love their families, who work hard to provide for them and take care of their home, but they're not able to get close to the very people who mean the most to them in the world. Now, there can be all kinds of reasons for this disconnect. It could be family of origin issues. They, they grew up with unhealthy patterns that they can't get free from. 
It could be they're living with unresolved hurts and wounds and losses in their own lives. It could be just the, the stress and anxiety of everyday life. Whatever it is, something gets in the way of deep, meaningful relationships. And when that happens in the church, it doesn't matter how spiritual we are. We are not experiencing true community. Well, let's continue with this little checkup. Paul's going to talk next about joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now, this is not just some random word of instruction, as if Paul is suddenly leaping to some brand new topic. No, it flows out of what he's just talked about. The, the relational conflict between Euodia and Syntyche, it's robbing them of joy, it's robbing the community of joy. And so Paul talks about that. Now, we haven't discussed this word joy very much, but it's a dominant theme in this letter. Fourteen times or so, Paul talks about joy in this letter. Meanwhile, remember, he's a prisoner. He may not get out alive, and he's full of joy. And he wants his readers to be full of joy, even though they are facing persecution too. So this joy can't, it can't be about circumstances. It's not mere happiness that he's talking about. No, joy is best defined as a deep inner sense of well-being. A deep inner sense of well-being. It's the ability to delight in the goodness of God regardless of your circumstances. It, it, it's, a, it's a resilience. It's, it's inner strength. It's positive emotional energy. It's what Nehemiah was talking about when he said to his people, the joy of the Lord is your strength, even as they did the hard and long work of rebuilding their city. According to Paul, joy is the default setting for the Christian. The default emotional setting for a Christ follower is joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. It may be that joy is the surest sign of emotional health, this inner strength, this deep sense of well-being. And yet joy is what Peter Scazzaro and his wife and his team and his church were missing in spite of the fact that they were passionately pursuing God and doing His work in the world. Every so often here at Grace, we'll have a a visiting pastor or one of our mission partners or a consultant come and spend a couple days with us. They might sit in on staff meetings. They may shadow some people around the office. They may join us for staff chapel on Monday afternoon. And one of the common observations they'll make about our staff life together is that we seem to enjoy each other, that we seem to like what we do and we kind of laugh easily and often. Now, maybe you wish your pastoral staff were famous for something besides laughing together and having a good time. Might be nice to hear we're famous for prayer and hard work. We do pray and we work hard. But I think there's something good and healthy and godly about enjoying the people you work with and the work that you're doing, and we do. There's something healthy, too, I think, and hope about... about walking into the sanctuary on a Sunday morning, stepping onto any one of our campuses anytime, and feeling joy in my heart 
as I get to worship or grow or serve or eat or anything else with all of you. It's a joy to, to, to pull into the parking lot each day anticipating what God is going to do. I like to believe that joy is the default emotional setting of our life together as a church. But when it's not, or when some of us are not feeling that kind of joy, it's an indicator that something's wrong. One of those vital signs is a wry. And we need to pay attention to something in our own hearts or in our life together. Let's keep following Paul as he walks us through. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do not be anxious for anything. Yeah. Did you know that America is the anxiety capital of the world? <laughs> this is true. The World Health Organization has determined that America is by far the most anxious nation on the face of the earth. They tell us that over a third of Americans will experience some kind of anxiety disorder in our lifetimes. It is the most common diagnosis from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that counselors and therapists use. Worry, fear, panic, phobia, sleeplessness, constant agitation, beeping noises that drive you nuts. <laughs> they just, you know... I think we'd all agree that we have plenty of things to worry about in our world today. Some of those things are big. Some of those things are worthy of worry and anxiety. ISIS and Ebola, they strike fear in our hearts. And then there are the everyday fears as well. Job layoffs, financial challenges, Performance reviews, midterm exams, car troubles, a, a nagging ache or pain that just won't go away. These anxieties, they, they not only rob us of joy, they keep us from engaging deeply with the people around us. I mean, how can we empathize with someone else when we're so preoccupied with our own pain? How can we move toward a person when we're paralyzed by fear? How can we give ourselves to someone else when it takes every ounce of emotional energy we have just to stay on top of things? Now, Paul offers an, an antidote to that kind of anxiety, and it's prayer. He says, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, he uses three different words here. Prayer, petition, and requests, they all mean pretty much the same thing. Bring it to God. Whatever it is, bring it to God. Tell Him everything, tell Him anything. Tell Him every day, tell Him every way. Pour it out to God. And as you do, He says, give thanks. Remember what you have and remember what He's done. Like many of you, perhaps, who use the Encounter with God devotional guide, I've Got up early this morning, and before I jumped into sermon preparation, I spent a little time with the reading for the day. And to my surprise, it took us to Psalm 88, which is in fact a prayer, a prayer of petition. And I was struck by the honesty 
by the emotion in this prayer. Just listen to a few lines of Psalm 88. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. I am overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I am like one without strength. My eyes are dim with grief. I have suffered and been in despair. Darkness is my closest friend. That's the last line. Darkness is my closest friend. This is a tough prayer to read, but it's an honest prayer. It's the prayer of someone who's in touch with their emotions, who's free to express those emotions, and even to bring them out loud to God and to share them with the community, believing that God ultimately is the one who can save. And this is the kind of prayer and petition and request that Paul is inviting us to engage in. But notice something and hear this. Don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. Paul is not really telling his readers to go home in their prayer closet and pour it out to God. That's okay, but that's not really what he's talking about here. Remember, this is a letter to the community. The context here is the church. We read this passage through our 21st century Western individualized mindsets, but Paul's readers would have heard it collectively. So it's fine to go home and pray, and you need to do that, and I'm sure we all do those things. What we neglect to do is to bring those prayers to the community, to come together to pray. Let's not forget to come to the congregation and pray. Let's bring our requests to our ministry and serving team before we go about our business. We sit down in our life community groups or when we're with some spiritual friends. Let's pray together. Not just for Aunt Ida's gallstones, but for our own anxieties, if we dare to mention them. If you're struggling with fear today, or worry, or anxiety, paralyzed by those things, have you told somebody have you shared it with another person? Have you invited them to pray, not just for you, but with you? It's incredibly powerful and redemptive. So many times I have come into a prayer meeting burdened, worried, anxious, overwhelmed, wondering if I even had time to be praying, and then walked out of that prayer meeting feeling as though a load had been lifted that God was in control, that other people were with me, and that I had peace. That's the power of prayer together. And that's what Paul tells us. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. God's peace will be like a garrison. It will be like a fortress guarding your hearts and your minds, not just individually, but collectively. Now, one quick caveat here. Prayer is not a quick fix for anxiety and some of the things we've been talking about this morning. Now, prayer is the right, right way to begin. But God's answer to that prayer may be a counselor. It may be a support group. It may be medication properly prescribed and taken. Prayer is the first defense against anxiety and worry.
Well, now Paul turns attention to our thought life. Finally, brothers whatever and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. He's talking here about the tapes that play in our heads. You remember tapes? They go around and they say things like, you know. <laughs> He's talking about the messages that shape our feelings and our behaviors. They may be messages you heard growing up. You'll never amount to anything. You can't do anything right. Why can't you be more like your sister? They may be messages you're hearing from the world around you. The media telling us sex is just something that we do. A professor telling you that science and faith are incompatible. A co-worker telling you if your marriage is unhappy, then just get out. These kind of negative and dark messages are harmful. They're harmful to your health and they're harmful to your relationships. That's why it's so important for us to come together on a regular basis to worship a God who is faithful and loving and good. That's why we sit down and open the Scriptures together to get real wisdom for living. That's why we need spaces that are beautiful and welcoming and creative that celebrate the goodness of God in the world. That's why we need to sit down with friends in, in Christ and, and share a meal or a cup of coffee together and talk. Because when we begin doing these things, we begin to think things that are good and true and beautiful. And when your thoughts become good and true and beautiful, you know what? Your feelings become good and true and beautiful. And when your thoughts and feelings become good and true and beautiful, you know what? Your behavior begins to become good and true and beautiful. And then before we know it, our community is good and true and beautiful. That's how Paul concludes the passage. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Paul's reminding us here that we are whole persons. Our thoughts our feelings, our relationships, our behaviors, our prayers are all wrapped up together. There is great wisdom here, friends. A simple diagram might help us understand what Paul is getting at here. He's telling us a deep biblical truth that we are whole persons. We are obviously physical beings. We have bodies, eyes and ears, hands and feet that allow us to express ourselves and relate to the world around us. But we are also intellectual beings, right? We have minds that are capable of, of, of reasoning, of, of complex thought, of lifelong learning. We are also spiritual beings. We yearn for transcendence. We can't help but worship and pray. Let's pause here for a moment because what happens in many churches, in many spiritual communities, is they stop with these three things. And they convince themselves, well, as long as we come together a few times a week, as long as we study the Scriptures and teach good theology, as long as we pray and fast and worship together, then we're good to go. We're healthy. No. There's two more dimensions of personhood and human experience that you dare not neglect. We are also emotional beings. 
We feel sadness, joy, fear, grief, satisfaction. And we are social beings. We're made for relationships. It's not good for us to be alone. Family and friends and love and belonging, we die without these things. And so there are these five dimensions to the human experience. In order for a community to be healthy, it has to attend to all five of these and cultivate all five of these. Unless you think I'm making all this up or it's just some pop psychology. Remember what Jesus said when someone asked him, Master, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? What does God want most of all from human beings? And what did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and your neighbor as yourself. The five dimensions of human experience. It's written into the very fabric of the universe and who we are as human beings. And when we're attentive to all five of these, when we're growing in all five of these, then we're on our way to being healthy people and a healthy community. And that's how the passage ends. And the God of peace will be with you. The peace that Paul's talking about is the shalom of God. And you know what shalom means? It means wholeness. Wellness in every part of your being. Being in a right relationship with God, with others, and with your very self. Sounds like a healthy person to me. Once a month or so, here at Grace, on, on all of our campuses, we have newcomer receptions. Folks who are just coming to Grace Chapel to kind of get oriented and to learn more about the church. And typically, we like to ask a question of newcomers. We say, what brought you back? Something must have worked for you to come back a second or a third time. And typically, the responses are things like uh, Kids Town or Student Ministries, how important that is to them as a family. Uh, they might talk about how they were warmly welcomed in the parking lot or, or at the front door when they came in. They'll talk about the music. They'll talk about the preaching. It's wonderful to hear all those things. But you know the comment that means the very most to me when they say something like this? I sense the presence of God here. That's shalom. That's the wholeness, the wellness, the peaceful presence and activity of God in the midst of his people. That's wholeness. That's a healthy community. Every year, the American College of Sports Medicine announces a list of the healthiest cities in America. Now, they come up with this list based on a variety of factors. Smoking and obesity rates, uh, parks and recreation exercise facilities, health care infrastructures, all these kinds of things, cultural habits. This year, Washington, D.C. came out on top of the list, the healthiest city in America to live in. It bumped from the top space, Minneapolis-St. Paul, which had been there for many, many years. Apparently, healthy is cold is good for you. Um, <laughs> if, you'll be glad to know that Boston made the top ten. We came in at number nine. But we dropped from number six. Must have sold too many cannolis at Mike's Pastry. I don't know. <laughs> but here's the interesting thing about all of this. When people move to a healthy city they get healthier. Just moving into the city, they get healthier over time. 
they lose weight, they eat better, they get sick less often, they live longer, and they feel better. When you move into a healthy city, over time you become a healthier person. And you know what? The same is true of churches. When you move into a healthy spiritual community, you begin to get healthy as well. Because true communities recognize the inseparable link between emotional health and spiritual maturity. We become more mature in Christ and we become more whole as people. And Scazzaro has seen that happen in his church over time as they have become a healthier place. He tells the story of a guy named Bill, an IT professional who moved into the community eager to be involved with a good church. Now, he was a, had a career outside of the church. He was married with kids, but, but he was actively involved in the church from the get-go. He, he led teams. He was a Bible, Bible study teacher. But all the while, there were issues beneath the surface that Bill was not attending to. The rejection he felt all through childhood. The lack of any real friendship in his life. A marriage that had grown cold and distant. Looking back on it, he says, I was like an emotional black hole with emotional signals getting lost in my highly rational thinking. It wasn't until his wife told him that she didn't love him anymore that he finally began to wake up to these dimensions of his life and attend to them and get help with them, which he did. And over time, he became a healthier person. He became more transparent and open, sharing his weaknesses and his struggles. Instead of trying to fix people or problems, he came alongside people and ministered out of his weakness and out of his brokenness. Over time, he became such a humble, godly presence in the life of this church that other hurting people would look to Bill and say, if he can get healthy, then I can get healthy too. That's what happens when you move into a healthy community. As I said, it's such an important topic. We're going to come back to it next week and talk about conflict, and we'll visit some of these other thoughts later on in the year as well. But as we finish up, let's come back to the question we dared to ask at the beginning. How healthy are we? Individually, collectively. How healthy are we? As a church community, as I said, I, I like to think we're in a pretty healthy place. We intentionally attend to these five dimensions of personhood we talked about here today. We, we physically come together once and twice and three times a week in one way or another. We try to offer thoughtful classes and messages and those kinds of things. We, we're getting better at being vulnerable and transparent with each other. We're, we're not afraid to talk about feelings. We like to laugh and have a good time out loud together. We, we celebrate what's good and true and beautiful in the world. I'm, I'm happy for where we are, but I surely don't feel like we've arrived yet. We can certainly get healthier. We can certainly get closer. And that's what this year of coming together is all about. Now, how healthy are you as an individual? Only you can answer. But maybe this little checkup this morning has revealed some aspect of your life, one of those five perhaps, that needs some attention. Now, maybe you need to go and work on it on your own, find a counselor, get a book, whatever, and go after it. But the wonderful thing is that one of the best ways to get healthy is 
You don't have to move to a new city. You just need to move into a community. And we have all kinds of them for you here. For fusion and gravity for teenagers. Fire for young adults. Maps for older adults. If you're struggling with any particular hurt or habit, getting in the way of relationships, Celebrate Recovery is here on the Lexington campus every Monday night. If you're dealing through a great loss or difficult season, we have grief share, we have divorce recovery available. Life communities are places you can come and bring your prayers and petitions and requests, not just to God, but to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Adult courses will stretch and challenge your thinking. How healthy are you? Maybe the better question to ask is, how healthy do you want to be? How healthy do we want to be? And the good news is you don't have to move to another city. You just have to move into community. Let's pray. Lord, your word, the scriptures, has searched us out and has found us this morning. You know us, every part of us, because you made us. You made us to be the complex and beautiful and God-imaging beings that we are. And we're grateful for that, Lord. We're grateful for the times and seasons and relationships in which we get it right. We thank you for joy and love and peace that we experience in our lives, our homes, and in our church community. But Lord, we confess we don't always get it right. We confess that we neglect aspects of our life, that we're afraid to uncover things, that we protect ourselves. So we pray that by your Holy Spirit, we might find freedom to be our true selves with you and with one another. Pray that you might bring healing, hope, peace, love, and joy into our lives, our homes, our communities, our church, in order that we might share it with the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing a closing song.
the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious to us. May the Lord turn his face towards us and give us his peace that we might share it with the world. Amen.